Greetings. This is the Sex Ed Book Review Podcast, the podcast where we read sex ed books before you, tell you all about them so you can decide if it's right for you and those that you care about. Content warning, there will be discussions of sexuality, sexual health, and bodies. And today there may also be some discussion of sexual abuse and assault. And I, as ever, am Landa Fox. My pronouns are she and her. And I am a board-certified behavior analyst and a certified sexual health educator living and working in what is now called Victoria, British Columbia, Canada, and the traditional territory of the Lekwungen-speaking people. Hi, Landa. Um, my name is Barb Gross. I use she, her pronouns. I uh, also am a board-certified behavior analyst and an ASEC certified sexuality educator. ASEC is the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Um, currently living and working in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, in the United States, um, on the ancestral territories of the Osage, the Missouri, and the Illini um, tribes. Also having a lot of fun with, like, I went on a fidget purchasing spree, so I have, like, three in my hands right now. So it's very exciting. My hands will be busy. But it's not just us today. No, it's not just us. Today, we are going to be talking about a book called Creating Consent Culture, a handbook for educators, which is by Marsha Baczynski and Erica Scott, which was published in 2022 by our favorite Jessica Kingsley Publishers, who publishes all the best stuff in the realm of sexual health education. And so this book is for educators and outlines a series of fun, interactive exercises that can help teach young people a variety of consent skills. And we have Erica Scott, they, her with us today, Erica is the founder of Creating Consent Culture, is passionate about preventing the damage that sexual abuse causes in the lives of its victims. Teaching consent skills across the lifespan has become their life's work. They believe that through this work, we can create a more caring and kinder world. Erica, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, I'll just add that I'm also here on what is now called Delta um, also known as Delta, on the unceded and stolen territory of the Suwasan and Homasquam and other Coast Salish peoples. Thank you for that invitation to have us all recognize the traditional territories where we live. We value and appreciate that as well. Um, all right. So we're super excited to have you. Your book is like slightly different than some of the books that we review and that it's kind of a guidebook for educators, which I think we both are super into because we are both educators and we do review a lot of books that are, you know, for parents uh, or geared at teens or, or youth or, or younger kids. And so we're excited to have like a bit of a different um, book. So we do like to start with a description of the cover of the book. So if folks go start searching for it, they kind of know if they found the right thing when it pops up on a search engine. Right. So um, the cover of the book is like, has a light, pink background and then the words creating consent culture are um, shown in speech bubbles that are held by hands kind of holding them out um, but people do need to be aware because I didn't realize until after the our book came out but there was another book published um, around the same time called creating cultures of consent <laughs> and the cover looks very similar but it's a very different book so yeah. um, creating consent culture Fabulous. And um, yeah, tell us a bit about what inspired um, you and Marsha to write the book um, and a little bit of the process that you went through in, in kind of the writing and development of the book. 
Absolutely. Well, I'm going to start back at I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse. And that led to me having a lot of issues around my boundaries um, for my entire life. Uh, I'm 56 now. And I really struggled with my boundaries for a very long time. And um, when I was in my 40s, and I had a health crisis, I learned about a thing called cuddle party, and I was really drawn to it. And I ended up becoming a cuddle party facilitator. Um, cuddle party is a touch and communication workshop. And the first part of it, the welcome circle is basically consent education. It's an hour of exercises that are fun, that teach you skills like how to say no when you're a no, how to say yes when you're a yes, what to do if you're a maybe, um, how to hear no graciously. And these skills helped me so much. And I saw them helping a lot of people in these um, events as well. People would have life-changing moments, right? Aha moments. And I really wanted, I was like, everybody needs these skills, especially young people. Cuddle Party is a non-sexual event, but it's still only for people 18 and up. So I went to Marsha and I said, look, how do you feel about, oh, uh, Marsha is also, my co-author, Marsha Baczynski, is also one of the founders of Cuddle Party. And so I went to her and I asked her, you know, could I take the welcome circle and change it and make it so that it's age appropriate and doesn't really involve touching, but just going through the exercises and add some exercises and make it for like people, you know, say age 10 and up. And she was like, great, go for it. Do that. Um, so I did do that because, you know, most people are never going to go to a cuddle party. Young people can't go to a cuddle party. So um, so I was living in Honolulu at the time and I uh, workshopped this new workshop uh, there and I had great feedback from people. Again, people saying like this changed my life. Um, I can't believe I never thought of that before. You know, some of these ideas are very simple, but we never talk about these things and I just never thought of it. So um now I was like, okay, this workshop works. It's great. But now how do I get out there? Um, and I was on my first ever girl trip to a women's conference in Sedona. And I just woke up on the third morning with the words in my head, make it a book. It has to be a book. And so I asked Marsha if she would co-author the book with me. And she said, yes. Amazing. And um, then um unfortunately with the pandemic was I mean it's too bad but it was fortunate for us because I think that's the only way uh Marsha ever would have slowed down enough to write the book with me mm. <laughs> was very busy. so that it worked for us we got it um we got it done and um we found Jessica Kinkley Publishers who I agree they have great books um and that's that's the story. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I, I think that when I was reading in that that kind of like link to the cuddle parties, and I like we can definitely put links to some of that, like your uh, like website and the information and the information to cuddle parties too, because I think people do. I appreciate you highlighting that they're in a non sexual event because I think people get that um, mistaken a lot um, that those that they're not a sexual event and it really is just about um, like source of a source of like platonic touch that's very like intentional. Um, very intentional. And that's yeah. one of the issues in 
uh, North American culture anyway, is that we don't, we think of all touch as sexual touch. We don't think about platonic touch. We don't get enough platonic touch. Um, and then also when it comes to consent, people think, oh, consent is only about sex, but mm -hmm. it's really about every interaction we have. And in the book, we talk about that. Um, mm -hmm how we're talking about consent on a very broad level. Of course, we want to build consent skills to help prevent sexual violence as well as other kinds of violence, but um, we do talk about it in general terms and that's how we've made it age appropriate as well. Right, right. Um, can you describe sort of like the the book's kind of general layout or or maybe some of the um, maybe not, you know, chapter by chapter necessarily, but sort of like the general progression. Um, I also love that each chapter starts with sort of some personal, more personal anecdotes from mm -hmm. from yourself and from Marsha too. I thought that was, that's really nice. You don't often hear that or see that kind of like level of vulnerability, I think, from from authors to share um, their experiences as it kind of leads in. And I really thought it humanized the content, which was really nice. Thanks for that. That was deliberate. Um, I'm 56 and I just don't care anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm happy to share my experiences of like struggling with my boundaries so that it can help others. Um, and we, I know that people learn through stories. So I thought it was important to have stories in the book. And so that was a deliberate choice. Um, the book starts out explaining, you know, why we wrote the book. Uh, what you're going to find in the book, how to use the book. And then uh, we go chapter by chapter through uh, the workshop, um, which has a series of fun and interactive exercises, some you would even call games, that start out with simple skills like saying and hearing no, and then it builds on that to more and more complexity. Um, and then at the end of the book, we have appendices and we have um just the workshop so if you need to and you can also get that off my website if you want to print it out as well separately um so if you need to be able to just read through it and look through it uh without it being separated into chapters it's there right how um if you're if, you, if folks are kind of curious like is this a multi-week workshop or a one-day workshop like what level of of detail um can people expect if they pick up the book so I just want to go back a bit. You were saying um, that it's for educators and it is, we designed it for educators of teens and tweens, but I'm also finding that a lot of parents are getting a lot out of this book as well. Um, and I am actually planning on writing a separate book just for parents and hopefully that'll be out in the next year or two. Um, but, you know, this workshop is for humans age 10 to 110. Everyone I've had many adults that enjoyed it very much. Um, and these exercises can be used in so many different ways. So someone could do the whole workshop, which now take after we added, as we wrote the book, it got larger. Mm -hmm. um, it now takes about three hours to do it properly. Okay. Um, when I go into schools, if it's younger kids, I'll break it up into smaller chunks. Um, but what I love is when I do train the trainers with educators, and then they incorporate these exercises into their curriculum throughout the year. And um, I think that's the best because you need to practice over and over. These skills don't just, it's not a one and done. It's not like you 
And that's one of the problems I have with a lot of consent education right now. People will sit down and watch a little movie and like, okay, we learned about consent. Um, in our workshop, you practice it. You you get to have an embodied experience of saying no and and having someone honor your no and what that feels like and what it feels like to honor someone else's no and not have a defensive reaction to it. And then it builds on that and you get to feel all these different uh, experiences in an embodied way. And then the hope is that, and you're having fun, they're having fun. There's a lot of laughter during this workshop. Um, and the hope is that in the future, when you're in more in a more high stakes situation, that you'll have more access to those skills because you felt them in an embodied way. And then you need to practice. Um, I mean, ideally, people will do these exercises many times rather than mm. just. Yeah, yeah. Um I think you sort of are like basically already touched on this with your description of the age range, but sometimes we'll ask like, are there any audiences that you would say like wouldn't benefit or like this, that, that this book is not for, um, but if it's for 10 to 110 and you've already talked about a couple different modifications, I get the sense that the answer to that is no, this book is great for anyone. But um, if you have any other thoughts about that, or even just, you know, maybe examples of audiences where you have used it um, um, that was kind of surprising that's how I feel about it. I feel like it could benefit anyone. I think kids 10 and under, it just wouldn't be fun enough or engaging enough, or maybe just a little too complicated. Um, but I, I mean, I haven't, since the pandemic eased off, I haven't had a lot of time. So I've mostly been taking it to, to educators and to students, but I do also offer it to businesses for improving workplace culture and organizations. Um, so, uh, yeah, I have done it for a group of social workers. Um, and so I, and I'm offering it in a bunch of different ways too. Like I'm also doing an online course where I certify people to lead the workshop as well. I'm doing one mm -hmm. of those right now. I'll be doing another one in the fall. It's often sex educators who take that course. Um, and you can find that on my website as well. Um, and it's just to take these exercises and concepts and integrate them into their work. Mm. I find that um, not a lot of consent workshops have these fun and interactive workshops, I mean, exercises, and also our emphasis on hearing no, it seems to be fairly unique too. A lot of consent workshops seem to be really focused on saying no and being more assertive and defending your boundaries, which I find is kind of low-key victim blamey because, you know, that is part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we need to be able to do that. But for a lot of people, it's for many people, it's so difficult to say no. And, and sometimes it's really even impossible. So we all, and I think we can prevent a lot of um, what happens, what goes wrong with consent by reaching the people who, who need to hear no uh, more graciously and more effectively and um, understand all the different ways no can look. Um, you know, most people don't want to hurt other people. There is a small percentage that for whatever reason actually actively tries to hurt other people. But a lot of what happens is through uh, misunderstanding, uh, 
poor modeling that they've learned from, um, miscommunication, uh, and yeah, various factors. Yeah. Yeah. And the, in the book, I like how you describe that as like act like consent accidents, right? That like the, that's often how it, how it happens. And then like you, the line was like, it's accidental, but that doesn't mean trivial, right? Like the impact can still be pretty huge. So that's absolutely just like a car accident can be, uh, you know, completely unintended and happen because you just looked the wrong way for one second, but that doesn't mean it doesn't cause Mm. injuries. Yeah. And that decision to write the book for educators, like you said, like, you know, that's in the subtitle, but you know, you're even seeing that it's being used beyond that, which I think, you know, is the mark of a, of a good book when it's used beyond the author's sort of like original intent. Um, But is that partially just so that you know, teachers obviously um, have such a a large role in in kids and youth's lives, and then also they have groups of youths together more frequently than maybe a a family. Like, is that part of the idea for creating it um, for educators? Um, to be honest, that was a publishing decision. Mm. Uh, Marsha and I wrote it for humans age 10 to 110. And then the publisher was like, oh no, you have to have a more niche market than this or mm. it won't work for us. And we decided if we had to focus on one group, then that would be educators of teens and tweens, that that mm. would be the most important group to reach. Yeah. It's, and I think that like educators be somebody who is like a sexual health educator. Um, I do this a bit, a bit more than bar, but I do teach in schools to general ed classes. Um, and you know, I have what usually equates to about 45 minutes. If I'm going to put in some time for question and answer to teach, you know, for example, ninth graders about, you know, a, a whole lot of topics <laughs> Incl- and like including consent when it's a, when it's about sex. And so it's so challenging to, to um, feel effective at that, I guess. Um, and that I've, you know, given each of those topics enough service. So I think a book that walks teachers through what they can do, especially pulling it away from the sexual focus. So I do, when I talk about consent in sex ed classes, I tend to focus a bit more on like laws around consent, um, you know, some of the more, but the, the, you know, around like um, impairment by drugs and alcohol and, you know, power imbalances and some of that, but really can't spend a lot of time. So I, I do think it's so valuable to have something that walks teachers through um, what to do. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I- Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and just I wish that every teacher could access it. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so important. Um, When you're, um, you know, obviously we're talking about like audiences for the book, and and Barb and I both do quite a bit of work um, supporting neurodivergent um, learners, um, mostly autistic children, youth, adults. Um, because they tend to just have access to a little bit more supports in terms of funding. Um, and I definitely saw spaces to modify some of your your lessons and and that 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 practice piece, I think, is so important for everyone, like you highlighted, and I find is even more important for the youth and young adults that I support. Like they really do need to have the those opportunities to to practice. So I think that 
I could see how how that book could be used for like a more inclusive audience. Were there any other thoughts that you gave to just like making sure some of the messaging or the language and things like that in the book was really inclusive so that it applies to everyone? Yeah, I mean, for one thing, it was a design uh, decision to make this for humans of all genders. Um, there are consent workshops out there, unfortunately, that uh, will sp split, will have different programming for girls and programming for boys, and then no plan for anyone who does not fit into those categories. Mm. Um, that's, there's, that's, um, there's a fairly popular workshop still here in Vancouver, um, and they've been trying to change it, but it doesn't work because it's so um, such different programming. And um, uh, so we are, it's, this is a gender inclusive workshop. And it's not like we don't acknowledge that there is gendered socialization that can lead to, you know, some people having a harder time saying no, or some people having an easier time asking for what they want some people doubting themselves more, um, some people feeling more entitled, um, that is a thing. But at the same time, as humans, we could all get better at saying no. We could all get better at hearing no. We can all get better at asking for what we want clearly. Mm. We can all get better at noticing when people are have a lack of enthusiasm. And sure, it might be to different degrees, but these are all human issues. And um, so that was really important to us. Um, and then we do talk about systemic inequity in the book. Uh, we were very aware that we were two white ladies writing um, or uh, writing a, a book. And so uh, we hired a sensitivity reader and actually they were the one that caught that. And we're like, you're bundling systemic inequity in with socialization and mm. you want to make it its own thing. And yeah, because sure, yeah, they're interconnected. Um, systemic inequity impact socialization um, and vice versa, but they're two different things. So that's when we started really talking about uh, systemic inequity and power imbalances and how they impact consent in interactions as well, which is also something I haven't seen a lot in other workshops. Yeah, I yeah. Would agree. Um, and that was something I saw, as soon as I saw it, I got really, really excited. The the power and privilege wheel. And that is, it, it's such an effective way to, especially with younger folks to get them thinking about all of the different ways that all of these things can have a different impact. Um, and Land, I don't know if you have that experience just talking, like if you're talking to, um, you know, disabled folks about how that very specifically affects, you know, the communities that we support, right? That you know, we're, we're with a community where sometimes the, the opportunities to be able to consent at all are non-existent. Right. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I have a friend who's visually impaired and people grab her and drag her across the street all the time without asking. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. There's yeah. If people don't recognize those things, right, it can just so quickly turn into a consent violation. I like that you outlined some of those in the book, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, could you talk about some of the like without sort of, you know, walking through every single part of the of the of the workshop and all of the different exercises, but maybe like some of the ones that stand out to you as um, being, you know, 
the most maybe impactful or ones that you see that people are sort of surprised at like, oh, they didn't realize that maybe that was a concept that they needed that is part of con- consent or understanding consent? Um, well, I'll just start with so something that we do that uh, is pretty unique is really focus on hearing no graciously. And what we do is we actually teach people to thank other people when they say no. Once we get them to understand, you know, many, most people probably have a really hard time saying no for various reasons. And we talk about that. Um, So when they're actually making the effort to tell you what their boundaries are, honestly, thank them. And uh, we get them to figure out ways to thank others that feel right to them. So they might say things like, oh, hey, thanks for letting me know what your boundaries are. Or, you know, or even just like, hey, thanks, that's cool. Um, and they will have more and more practice throughout the workshop doing that. At the beginning, when I ask them, how did it feel to thank someone when they said no, they'll be like, oh, it's weird. I didn't mm-hmm. like it. it was awkward. Or, you know, but by the end of the workshop, you can see how it's already not as weird. And I've had teachers tell me like even a few weeks later, they catch them thanking each other when they say no, and mm-hmm. that they really feel the shift, you know, in the dynamics. So that's so important to me. Um, we go through, uh, um, I think another thing that is really important that we talk about is that you always have the right to change your mind when it uh, comes to your physical autonomy and your body, uh, and touch. And, um, I, I really like to emphasize that because I've had so many young people, say things to me that indicate that they don't think they have a right to change their mind. Like, oh, well, I went to his place or, you know, oh, well, I, we were in a relationship, so it couldn't be an -hmm. assault or, you know, um, ideas of obligation and, you know, so um, that's really important to me. Um, Knowing what to do when you're a maybe, that's something that uh, a lot of, parents when they hear that they're like oh yes I see how this could be valuable I mean we all struggle with being unsure um but especially when you're young and you haven't tried a lot of things of course you're going to be unsure and so one thing is just you know getting them to realize that's normal and it's okay to be unsure and then you know what do you do when that happens um and then I most of the workshop is very fun very light. We might dip into a little bit of heavier topics, but the exercises themselves are fun. The one part that is really just kind of heavy is talking about the freeze response. Um, But I've had students tell me this was the most important part of the workshop for them because a lot of people just don't even know about the freeze response. And of course, there's also the fawn response, Mm -hmm. um, which now that I knowing what I know now, I wish I had said more about it in the book at the time. Um, I will definitely say more about it in the next book. But the freeze response, so there's fight, flight, and freeze. They're all autonomic responses that happen when our body feels like we're in danger. They happen in less than 15 milliseconds. That's quicker than I can snap my finger. You don't have time to have a conscious thought. It's not your choice. Your body decides what's the best strategy to survive fight flight or freeze and possibly fawn for most children young people and for most survivors of sexual assault freeze is the most common response 
And when you have a freeze response, you might not know what's happening. I've had freeze responses in my life and it was only maybe 10 years ago that I learned what about the freeze response. Up until I learned about it, I thought that I was a wimp. I thought that mm. I must just not have the guts it takes to fight back or yell or whatever in the moment. So I judged myself. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people who have the freeze response. They judge themselves, they blame themselves. And people who have a freeze response are less likely to report an assault. They're less likely to ask for help. They're less, and they're more likely to have PTSD afterwards. Mm. Now, if it's younger students, I don't get into all this. I just go through the, the your brain will really quickly shift so that your you know, parts of it shut down and other parts take over, your circulation changes, you don't have any control over it. It makes you feel very shut down. It happens in all mammals. With animals, we talk about them playing dead or, you know, mm. a deer frozen in the headlights. Um, it's a survival strategy and it might've happened to you and you might see it happen to someone, you know, and if you have a friend that's confused of why they didn't fight or yell or run away, you can tell them they probably had a freeze response with the older kids. I'll go into the statistics and how it's the most common response to sexual assault. And also once you've had a freeze response, you're more likely to have one again in the future. It's like it creates a channel or something. Not enough research has been done on these autonomic responses. How we get into them is better understood. How we get out of them is not as well understood. Um, uh, so for me, it's really important to talk about the freeze response because I feel like it's the cause of a lot of victim blaming and shaming. Of our, We do it to ourselves and also other people do it to us. So people might say, oh, well, you didn't say no or you didn't yell, or so that doesn't count. There actually used to be laws where, uh, and there probably are still in some places where it doesn't count as sexual assault unless there was enough of a struggle or enough of a yelling. I think it's still like that in Japan actually, mm. and probably other places as well. Um, and I don't know if you know the book, I Have the Right To by Chessie Prout, um, mm. but she talks about her, uh, how she took her assailant to court in the book, and she had an expert on the freeze response to testify. The judge wouldn't allow it. So that's just a couple few years ago. There, it's still not really understood amongst a lot of law enforcement and um, the court system. And so I just feel like everyone needs to understand it more. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. And like, Barb, you might feel this too, but I, I think that that those concepts also like working in it, like supporting neurodivergent folks, those responses are pretty common to a lot of just like overwhelm. So I think we see those responses a lot in our, in our clients. Um, and uh, not to say that, that, that that's been well understood by all different people supporting folks. Cause I think it has been misunderstood. Right. Mm -hmm. Especially like mm -hmm. a fight response, um, flight, you know, all of them freeze <laughs> the fawning and, and, you know, all of those, we definitely see, see them, um, pretty com commonly in our clients, but it's just making sure that people understand that, that what is happening and is right. It's the body taking over. I love the 
analogies that you use with like linking it to like the animal kingdom and stuff yeah. for, for younger kids, like those things are so meaningful. hundred percent. And one thing I think about that also, again, just kind of making it very specific for the the people that I meet with, you know, first of all, sometimes there is a, a history of having those boundaries like systematically ignored or violated. So you just learn that any boundary that you have, any efforts to say no to anything are just going to be ignored over and over and over, which we've talked about. And we talk about Dave Hingsberger all the time on this podcast. And that's something that he really emphasized, you know, and then the other thing is, you know, because, you know, for supporting communities where communication in general can be, um, can be different, um, can use different modalities that causes issues. And then on top of that, just, you know, challenges with interoception and being able to like notice what's going on inside the body. So being able to notice when something feels like a no can also be where you have to do like some extra, I do some sort of like, like just in my personal practice, some um, kind of unique, a little bit different kind of stuff to be able to help support people in like learning what no actually feels like um, mm. through lots of different things. It's, it, it's fascinating and it's, yeah, it, that can be a, a huge, huge challenge for some people. That's, that's one of the things we do. We have check-in exercises where yeah. uh, they learn to check in with themselves. Um, and there's a passive, passive sitting one and an active one. Um, and we talk about noticing how we feel in the body and noticing what we want and what we don't want or what we're a yes to and what we're a no to because rather than knowing because it's um something that changes from moment to moment and it's normal for it to change and so uh we talk about noticing before we get away totally from ptsd i just wanted to mention um that yes also ptsd affects the neurodivergent brain differently than it does others and there hasn't been enough research done on that either i've only been able to find one book on that it was a great book but um, yeah, that combination is, is different. Yeah. Sure. Not super understood. Do you think that, um, or do you have any thoughts about, um, um, you know, if, if people are sort of thinking like, this sounds great, <laughs> um, like words of encouragement for educators who are sort of nervous about starting the conversation. I mean, I think consent is like maybe like a safer topic, uh, you know, of course, lately with just political climate and, and certainly bar being located in, in um, the, the, a place in the States where there's a lot of sort of um, um, threats against, um, you know, people's bodily autonomy, just kind of broadly. Um, some educators, I think, are starting to get more nervous to have these conversations, unfortunately, than maybe they were even, say, like a year ago. Um, so that that's sort of like a you know, that's a big, I'm not asking you to solve those problems, obviously, but any just like words of encouragement for educators or parents um, who are maybe nervous about starting this conversation because maybe they see it as like sex ed and they don't, they don't think they're ready for that or yeah. Um, yeah. In some places you can't even say the word consent anymore. It's uh, considered too sexual or something. Uh, I've had trolls online you know, come after me saying I'm a groomer because I'm teaching children to say yes to sex. That's what mm. I mean. And you can't talk sense to them. Um, so yeah, I've ha actually worked with people in some states where they have to teach this material without using the words consent and consent culture. And they talk about things like um, self-advocacy skills um, and uh, 
um, better relationships and better boundaries and things like that. Um, so don't be, don't feel like you can't do this work because you're in a place where you can't use the word consent. I'm actually also working with some people right now who work in a language that doesn't have a word for consent. Mm. So that there's other ways to describe what we're doing here. Um, don't let that stop you. And um, also, yeah, we really have made it so that you can um, get through this whole workshop without talking about sex. We're right. talking about having mutually agreeable interactions that, um, and what we practice, what we have the kids practice with each other, there's no touch involved except for the, towards the end, there's a couple of exercises where they might do a fist bump or a handshake if they want to, but of course it's, you know, only with consent. And, um, so yeah, there's no, not even any touch involved. I always tell them we're going to talk about touch, but no one's going to touch anyone. Um, and really they're having fun learning like interpersonal skills and uh, it's, it's really not scary. Yeah. Yeah. Just like such a valuable lesson. Like I think you've, you've know, you've touched on a few times, like there's, this is like workplace culture stuff. This is friendship. This is uh, you know, intimate relationships, it's, you know, and it, it spreads everywhere. So, um, and you kind of talked about some of those like additional resources, um, like, you know, your website, um, and, and those things, is there anything else that you think is like other resources or other things that you find helpful to supplement your book? I'm sure people will look forward to, uh, the parent version <laughs> here you've talked yeah. about currently working on. Yeah, I'm excited about that. And um, yeah, everything's going to be on my website, creatingconsentculture.com. Um, you'll see trainings on there. Uh, I'm working on trying to make it a more um, exciting and user-friendly website. Um, just so many things on the go. And uh, um, yeah, there's trainings on there. There's uh, ways to get the book. There's uh, the book resources that... Um, are available to people who have bought the book um and uh podcast interviews are on there uh, uh articles that have been written about the workshop and the book and i think that's about oh and i do a blog i do a blog and okay. blog posts are on there great yeah and the book does have like a a, a a good resource section as well, right? Where you've relinked to quite a few different resources like within the book, which is great. Is there anything else from the book or just your work in general that you want to highlight or talk about that we haven't had a chance to touch on so far? Um, I just want to put it out there that I'm really open to collaborating with people. Um, right now I'm collaborating with a group in India that are developing curriculum. I love collaborating if I can. So if you think you have a great idea to collaborate with me, please reach out. Amazing. That's so wonderful. Thank you so much for walking us through a little bit of, of what's in the book. Uh, we really appreciate you um, being generous with your time and sharing it with us and everyone that listens to us. And uh, Barb, you can say your thanks and then take us out. Yep. We appreciate it so much. Thank you. It's good to meet you. It's good to hear more about the book. Um, 
And yeah, I might be working on putting my own workshop together. So yay. <laughs> Thank you. So you. All righty. Sex Ed Book Review is a collaboration between Landa Fox and Barb Gross. And the views and opinions expressed on this podcast should not be a substitute for professional or clinical advice. Find us on Instagram at Sex Ed Book Review and at www.sexedbookreview.com. 